Good morning. This is Trina Green with Parenting for Liberation. I am here with Quentin, a.k.a. Q. Walcott, who is the co-executive director of Connect Safe Families, Peaceful Communities, based in New York City. Hi, Quentin. Thanks for joining me. Uh, thank you for having me, Trina. How you doing? Good. So Q is a, is a movement maker on Move to End Violence program. He is the co-executive director of Connect. He does incredible work engaging boys and men in his community to end violence against women and girls. And a secret that he is also an amazing poet and spoken word artist. So he might bless us at the end of this podcast today. Um, Maybe, maybe, maybe. I hope so. (laughs) All right, so Q, could you share a little bit about your work in New York City um, engaging boys and men to end violence against girls and women? Yeah, of, of course. Uh, you know, again, thank you for having me. And, you know, my specialty in the field is engaging men and boys, but I do work with uh, families and communities and uh, really helping communities develop strategies to respond to multiple forms of violence, particularly from the lens of domestic violence, intimate partner violence. That's kind of like the, the entry point into looking at those intersectional issues and also interrelated issues around violence in general. My work has been as an activist for the last, uh hate to say, 20 years actually now. So um, I've been doing the work for quite a while. And, um, you know, really looking at how can communities interrupt cycles of violence and ultimately prevent cycles of violence. Um, that, so that's the, the main goal. And, and, you know, that, and that looks takes shape in many different ways. Um, I do work, you know, of course, here in New York City, but do some national work and do work uh, internationally as well around the issue of engaging men and boys. And, you know, initially it looked like doing, um, you know, battles intervention. So my my first segue into field was that, you know, running batters programs or programs for abusive partners, which were, you know, 99% were men um, and men of color in particular, or in the cases that there were white men, they were <coughs> poor working class white men that were in the populations that I was working with in uh, New York City. Um, so it was either black, Latino, poor folks, and, and men, a lot, of, a lot of these men were undocumented from different places all over the world. So with Connect, you know, we've worked with systems so that they can look at domestic violence in general, but then look at it differently in cases where there were child abuse and neglect in New York City, work with the child welfare system. That was the work we initially did. We were really trying to engage that system and also the people that were charged with investigating child abuse and neglect. And what we found was that, you know, almost up to 90% of the cases where there was child abuse and neglect, there was also domestic violence. And what was happening was that mothers were being held with neglect for endangering their children, even though that they were victims and survivors of domestic violence. They were putting their children in danger because of the abuse that they were receiving. So we're really trying to transform the way that um, the public system and the child welfare system really looked at that and to really include um, domestic violence and, and gender violence in, in their responses or intervention. And then after doing that for quite a while, we developed our own system analysis that systems really were biased in terms of race, class, gender, and sexual orientation. So, you know, we continue to do that work, but then we were also charged about really like 14 years ago to really look at what would prevention look like in New York City. So that was the work that we essentially do now. And we also do a a legal work. We have a legal helpline, and we do 
work with undocumented folks who are navigating legal systems and in some cases we work to get them e-visas so they can stay in the country. And then we have a training institute where we train many of the people in New York City to either work with men, abusive men, survivors of domestic violence, and children who witness violence. So we do a, you know, train the training work. We do engage communities, help develop networks, help, you know, communities develop strategies and tactics. And we train, you know, almost 700, 800 people a year to, to do this work in some capacity, either becoming a specialist, doing group work, or being a resource to their agencies or to people who are in the community who may see more domestic violence than we do as a domestic violence organization because domestic violence and sexual violence goes unreported. So um, we did a lot of uh, what I call guerrilla research, you know, research in New York City with, without a lot of money where we really got the community buy-in and asked them certain questions just generally around what do you think about domestic violence and gender violence? Do you think it's an issue? Um, where do you go if there's if there's a if you're trying to address that issue? Where do you go? Um, just you know, just the general thoughts and attitudes around it. Essentially, in each borough, same points came up in terms of um, you know New York, as you know, is very diverse and from block to block, there's a different language, different culture, different ethnicity. Um, so we, you know, a lot of folks were undocumented, and that's part of Central Brooklyn. And folks said that one, you know, they felt that it was an issue. There was a lot of cultural um, limitations for them receiving the help that they needed. And then also that um, folks were fearful of being deported if they reported. So they um, they would kind of hold this information, deal with it on their own. But they really wanted to go to their faith institutions to really deal with the issue. And they felt that, you know, the faith communities were sanctuary. And um, But with that came a lot of blaming of victims when they disclosed to the pastor, the priest and minister, the imam, about, you know, the violence that they were receiving. They were either blamed for it, told to pray harder, or in many cases they left the church community because in some cases the um, the men that were connected to the faith community were either had leadership positions. So it was a question of, you know, let me... Uh, um, you know, and there's a lot of patriarchy and misogyny and and faith communities, you know, and misinterpretations of religious t- texts support that. So a lot of that was taking shape, and, you know, some mothers were being, mothers and women were being blamed for the violence that they were receiving. So what we felt was really important is that if that's where people wanted to go, let's develop our work with faith communities. And then a second major piece that came out of this, which explains my work today, is... Um, you know, we did, and I did these myself, focus groups, individual interviews, and then focus groups with men, youth, people from the community leaders, informal and informal. And then, you know, folks said, particularly individually, that, yes, men's attitudes need to change about women and girls and other men, and that we need to do something. But then when I asked those same men in a, in a focus group with other men, no, none of them said the same things. They were worried about what the man sitting next to them would say if they stood up for women or challenged or held men accountable. So um, men individually and men in a collective, you know, had with two different people. So I wanted to really explore that. And, and through that, we developed uh, what we have here at Connect, is what we call Connect Men, part of our, part of the programs that we that we offer here at Connect in New York City. So, I mean, that's just a small backdrop of, you know, what kind of really 
um, became important to us as we developed Connect outside of um, working with systems directly and working with communities, engaging communities around multiple issues, not just domestic violence, but all those issues that someone who's experiencing domestic violence, intimate partner violence, um, was also uh, dealing with as well from child care to HIV and AIDS to substance abuse to immigration issues. So we used all of that to really develop what we are today at Connect. And one of the primary pieces to really prevent violence and interrupt these cycles of violence was as a strategy to engage men and boys. So that's why we really did that work to keep women and children safe and then to also try to interrupt these cycles. So long story short, that's uh, a little bit about me and what kind of brought me to this work at Connect. Thanks for sharing that rich history of Connect and also your work specifically and how you've shifted over time based on your assessment from community needs and community inputs. I think that's really important. The guerrilla research and going into communities and having the communities define what the solutions are. It's really helpful to hear that Connect has evolved over time. As I heard you describing it, it felt really similar to the socio-ecological model of like looking at the individual level to the relationships, to the community, to the societal levels, and really looking at how to support individuals who are experiencing violence, what are the support systems that need to be in place, how can the community be responsive, what's our relationship to one another, and then finally, what are the systems and the barriers within the systems, and how do we need to shift societal values and norms and beliefs and culture change and social change around these issues. Thanks for sharing that like rich history of connect, really helpful to get a sense of where you are now. You mentioned some of the cultural dynamics that folks who were undocumented were naming as barriers to their reaching out for support if they're experiencing violence. Like, so how the multiple intersections of documentation, immigration status impact their accessing services. And so this podcast is specifically for um, black folks who are raising black children. And I know that there are also similar barriers or cultural issues that get in the way, interrupt, or impact how folks access services. So in a recent article that you co-authored on Huffington Post entitled, Let's Stop Referring to Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault as Women's Issues, you discuss the role of men in ending violence against women and girls. You stated in the article that it comes down to male behavior and conditioning and that the way to prevent and address issues of violence requires men to be engaged in this issue. So breaking the cycle of violence starts with addressing how boys are conditioned to model male behavior and attitudes. And so when I think about African-American culture and masculinity, how it's portrayed in the media, what you mentioned also working in faith communities, my question to you is as a mother who's raising a son, a black boy, and I know you're a godfather to many and also a community father and father figure to many in the community that you do this work for. Can you name how black boys specifically are conditioned in terms of masculinity and how can we shift to new behaviors and new conditions for our black boys? Yeah, great question. You know, not, not only my father figure to many and just, you know, father by community, I am also, you know, one of two black boys raised by a black woman, you know, single mom. And so, I, you know, I know it from multiple levels and multiple ways, as we all do, really. The thing, too, is that I was born in New York City. I have, you know, family from the West Indies and Caribbean. But, um, you know, so there's a lot of values just, just, just from 
and experiences just from, you know, being raised in New York City, particularly by a black mother on her own, essentially. And, you know, there's not a one-size-fits-all. You know, I just want to preface everything that I say. It's not a one-size-fits-all. But um, there's so many things that can um, that play a role in how we're socialized to be, you know, boys and how we're socialized to be men. Um, for, I mean, not, not just the, the, the usual suspects in terms of the media and, you know, hip-hop and, you know, because everybody puts everything on hip-hop, but it's not just hip-hop. If you look at any form of music that has a visual presence or even lyrical, if you really break down a lot of lyrics from, from country music to, you know, whatever type of music it may be, to blues, to hip-hop, to rock, you know, just in terms of um, those messages that it sends about manhood and, and womanhood and a lot of the, our first examples of objectification are through through media, of course, through cartoons to the movies that we watch to the, the the music and lyrics and the videos that we that we see how it projects certain images of men what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and then what type of uh power does that dis- display about you know gendered power and uh, you know absolute power in terms of power controls and positions of power who are not so you know media of course sends those images and, and messages but then you know what happens at the in in the home right you know just some um, you know children of sponges you know if you know uh, if you look at a sponge when you first get it it's oh they don't, they don't sell them this way that much anymore now but they are flat and they are hard and they're slim but you put a drop and each drop is a, some form of socialization or experience that young people watch and they take all of that in they take they take how the roles that the mother plays in the home, the roles that the father plays in the home, right? And the images that they see on TV, you know, when they go to school, the roles that, you know, women are playing in whatever institution or industry that they're connected to from the schools to sports to the church to um, the corner store or, you know, how men and women are positioning in in the community. So all of these things um, send messages about, what it means to be a man or what it means to be a boy. And in particular, when you put race on top of that, right? So the, the roles that we have to play as, you know, black men and women and black boys and girls, that that's also impacted by that as well, right? So systemic and institutional structural racism plays a role in how we navigate our own communities and outside of our communities as well. So there's so many different ways and messages that we get about um, – you know, the conditioning that we receive. So it's from the home, it's in the schools, it's in the whatever institutions in our community that we're connected to. All of those things send messages about what it means to be a black boy or a black girl, right? So there's multiple ways um, that we kind of develop that. And then there's a lot of the traditional and generational rules and, and roles that we play in our families that we kind of push push on a future generation. And, not, you know, in a lot of cases, there's nothing wrong with this essentially, but when we're not having these conversations, and this is where the shift of new behaviors and attitudes come from. And in my work, no matter if it was doing work around gender violence or I was a student activist and I was a community and, and is still a community activist, so a lot of what we were doing in trying to gauge communities and anyone was to really kind of, you know, push this critical thinking. And I think that critical thinking can undo a lot of the negative socialization that we experience and, and develop and, and that we use and internalize to make our decisions about being black men and black boys. 
Yeah, so critical thinking in a sense of instead of just yielding to the tradition or what happens generationally and what you know and yielding to quote unquote acceptable societal attitudes and views and roles of men and women, and particularly black men and women, if we begin to really explain the choices you know, if it is a choice, right? I mean, we want to yield to that people making decisions about how they want to live. So if someone decides to be a homemaker, that that, that comes from a choice, not just as an assumption because you're a male or a female, and particularly as a black male and female. So we want to really kind of really break that down and debunk how we're making these decisions, why is this being passed down the way it is, respecting and valuing what everyone is bringing to the table, not just kind of saying that men's roles are more important because for the most part there's a a monetary value connected to that and that, you know, women's roles aren't as important because they're not, you know, traditionally I'm saying that that they're not bringing a certain level of uh, money to the table when in reality, you know, men and women and even the kid needs to work now just to kind of make it because of the economics of society today. But that respecting that, you know, traditionally, um, you know, women played that role as a homemaker, but now it's that, you know, women are working nine to five, men are working nine to five, and coming home and, and taking on another role and responsibility, and that's a 24-7 role of being, you know, the the homemaker and providing, take care of the family, and, you know, a lot of times neglecting themselves, um, and, you know, so all those traditional roles challenging all of that. How do we come to that? How do we make a decision about that? What are the choices that we are making as men, you know, as black men? How do we show up? And what I mean by that is really recognizing our privilege, our power, and the expectations of, that we have for ourselves and, that, and other people have for us, and particularly racially in terms of being a black man. You know, what what is society already dictating or expecting of how who we are to be and how we are to behave. But ultimately, the work to really um, undo the socialization and the conditioning is to really look at attitude shift and attitude change. Because my, my feeling is that if we change the attitudes and belief systems, the behavior will change, right? So a lot of it is really being critical about the choices that we make and being honest. I think one thing that my mother did for my, my brother Chris and I was to to be bluntly and brutally honest about we as young black men, particularly in New York City, have to be a certain way so we can get our butts home at the end of the day, right? That we have to experience racism. We have to, you know, work um, three or four times harder than our white male counterparts um, just to be, you know, taken seriously or at the same level in a society that was really white male dominated and and racist societies, right? So we had to really work three times as hard and see instilled in us that we were kings, you know, and and almost to a point where when something did happen with challenge, we were like, we're kings, this shouldn't be happening to us. So it was like um, a really, um, you know, it was a positive, you know, uh, messages that were being sent to us, but it was also messages that you have to work doubly hard or triply hard because we live in racist society. So I think, and what I respect about my mother was that she didn't lie to us, you know. She said all things are possible, but she didn't lie on what the path was to achieve that. And that's what I appreciated, and that's what I bring to the work that I'm doing now with with, uh, black men and boys to really kind of challenge the status quo 
Wow, thank you. As I heard you telling the story, and particularly like thinking about your mother raising you and your brother, just thinking about her as a parent for liberation and how she had to build you up, right, as young black kings and also prepare you for the external factors that would try to tear you down and that would try to tell you that you weren't a king. And so just that duality, right, and like like having a double consciousness as you are growing up as a young black boy, it just makes me think of I'm raising parents about how do I develop in him and cultivate in him a sense of pride for who he is and also having a sense of awareness and consciousness about the systematic ways that he will be attempted to be oppressed and that he can still be liberated and free while systems are trying to hold him back and how he can do the both and and the duality of that. And so probably can learn a lot from your mother about how to do that well. And, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking about what's the juxtaposition, like how much of it is about attitude shifts and changes to belief systems and cultural narratives that we have about what it means to be a black boy or a black man to soften and to shift the notion of like how we hold power and authority and privilege as black men while at the same time knowing that there are external conditions and factors that say you are powerless as black men and at the same time you are too powerful and bold for this system so we have to take you out right it's like the nuances that exist with black manhood. Um, on, the, on a previous recording, I talked about the issue of being being too much and not enough all at the same time. And so that kind of resonates again in this moment of like your mother telling you that you are black kings and that there are systems and institutions and oppressions that are going to tell you that you're not. And that you as a young boy said, this should not be happening to us because we are kings. And how do you hold the both and, right? And so just really, really appreciative of your mother right now uh, <clears throat> and too, that story. <laughs> and then the, something that you just mentioned around, you know, really masculinity, right? And, it's, and I truly believe that there's masculinities, there's different types and forms. Um, there's, and there's a range of it that we experience every single day, particularly black boys and black girls in certain communities, and probably all communities, um, but I think one of the things that un- can undo the the conditions that you that you asked in your question is really um, exposing youth and black males and girls to to different forms of masculinity, right? And I think there's um, when we're left alone to our own devices, and uh, you know, my mom, you know, she did all those great things for us and told us things specifically, but there's a lot of things that I observed, you know, but just which and it goes back to this critical thinking where I just kind of like either to myself or to other people ask questions and like, you know, why is it like that? Shouldn't, you know, well, why shouldn't it be that way? And then the, and the thing about it was that, you know, as much as humanly possible, because I, I think because my mother was an artist that we were exposed to a lot of art and culture and museums and, you know, just realizing that there's something beyond that four radius block that we live in, you know, in terms of like different forms of masculinity. So I think, to the point is, and then you know, I just recently did a a men's round men's round table, a men and youth round table, where we talked about you know what it, what influences you know young black and Latino boys in particular, and we talked about the different men that are available. And you know, my mother and father were divorced when I was two, and my brother was three, so it was you know a long gap in terms of 
what male influences that we had, but the ones that we did have and that I noticed and, you know, sought out were um, looking at different types of masculinity. You know, it was a hyper-masculinity where, you know, kind of like the athlete, the guys who were hustling or selling drugs or gangs in, in different communities. There was other different types of masculinity of, you know, the, the brothers that were, you know, working, you know, nine to five in the neighborhood that were, um, you know, projected a different form of masculinity. It could be hyper as well. You know, not all of it is about physical prowess and, and that, that that type of thing. It's also about money. It's also about, you know, connectedness, all these different forms of masculinity. I think that is important that we um, present a menu of masculinity for black boys in particular so they can kind of pick and choose what they like. I like that aspect of Johnny. I like that aspect of Akeem. I like that aspect of you know, Noel, whoever it may be, and they could pick and choose about, you know, what they want to, what they want to take on, even if, and I know <clears throat> your husband is around and is active, so even if you have that particular consistent presence of, of a positive masculinity in front of you, I think they still need to see other forms of masculinity so that they're prepared for the world and also to have some compassion and some, some um, to be able to discern what's good for them and what's not good for them. You know, so I think having one form of masculinity in consistently in front of one person and it's kind of a narrow form that, you know, boys will yield to that. You know, but if they can see other forms of masculinity in front of them, I think they can make better choices about who they want to be as men growing up. So I think that's important too. But also the consistency as well is that whoever's consistent in a young per- per- young black boy's life, they're going to yield towards that. So... I think, you know, I always say to, to, to men that I work with, particularly black men, if you are consistent in that young person's life, 10 minutes a day will undo 10 hours of negative influences that that young person has. And then, you know, and black boys are seeking positive male influence and they're seeking consistent. So I think it's important that we... Um, present that and we present this menu of masculinities to our young boys so they can make better decisions about who they are have other examples of drawing from when they develop into their as men and manhood is a process as well so i don't see it as a stagnant certain age or the fact that you have a child that makes you a father or a man so you know there's a lot of other things that are um, connected to that as well so i just wanted to add that yeah that's really helpful when I think about raising my son, I agree that it takes a village. It takes more than just the one male that's in his household. So my son has a variety of men that he can look up to and pull various types of masculinity and how they operationalize what it means to be a man in their lives. So just blessed that my son has my husband. He has his own father. He has his grandfather. He has my brother, his uncle. He has multiple versions of masculinity to learn from. And so Father's Day is coming up. So shout out to all the fathers that are fathers to my son and to all the other fathers in the world. You're actually doing some incredible work that's not only limited to fathers who are biologically fathers to children, but also father figures to children outside of their homes. And so can you tell me a little bit about your annual Father's Day pledge and the work you do at Connect around Father's Day? Yes, um, you know the work we do to connect is we have uh, we work with men and boys year round, 
and the you know Father's Day is you know the idea is to celebrate men and you know and lift them up, and we're trying to do that as well. The Father's Day pledge to to come together and recite in unison to sit on the steps of New York City Hall and we say this pledge together and show the strong presence. You know, my 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 mantra or motto here at Connect is moving men from perpetrators bystanders to allies and to activists and doing activism on our own. So this is one example of the activism that we've created that, you know, connects. And this is our seventh annual Father's Day Pledge. And my job, and I want to prevent the violence from happening, and we want to really kind of change the, the discourse around violence and how it happens and who does it and prevent those cycles of violence from happening. So this is one of those forms of doing that. And we've done this um, for seven years now. We partnered with city council, and we partnered in particular with Councilwoman Lori Cumbo, who is also now the uh, co-chair of the Women's Caucus and chair of the Women's Issues Committee. Also, the other st- strategy around it is that Father's Day happens to fall in terms of city government during a time when there's a lot of budget negotiations. So having this pledge down at City Hall in the midst of budget negotiations also makes sure that domestic violence and violence against women and girls is really prominent on the council members as they decide to vote, and also this idea of engaging men and boys. Because the other piece of this I maybe did not mention is that it's not just men's role in this. Men commit, particularly in heterosexual cases, up to 90% of the violence against women and girls. So it makes sense that we no longer just kind of see this as a a women's and girls issue, that this is a men's and boys issue because we commit most of the violence. We have to really explore that, and that goes into that question of what you raised earlier around, you know, why do this work and why it's important that you engage men and boys because we are committing to that violence. So we have to really look at all the things and factors that contribute to us making the decision to be violent in our relationships, particularly towards women and girls. So that's really important to really look at, our conditioning and our socialization. And I think that is a, a major part of you know, the issue around black men and black boys in terms of the points around violence and that we have to really, um, you know, interrupt that. It's really good to hear it come back full circle, it's, and particularly utilizing Father's Day and this pledge as a strategy to raise awareness about the violence that's happening in our communities. So how can folks who are in New York City, what can they do to join, to support? Yeah, I mean, um, Two two simple things. I mean, you can one, you can definitely follow up with uh, Connect's website, and that's um, www.connectnyc.org. We are also on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is Connect underscore NYC, and we're also on Facebook. It's Connect Safe Families, Peaceful Communities. We're gonna be launching Change.org petition for people to sign on to the pledge nationwide and worldwide as well. The pledge is being replicated in 40 other cities in um, three other countries this year. It's just growing every year, so it's happening. It may be happening in a city near you. Check with our website tonight information. We're using hashtag FDPAV22016, Father's Day Pledge Against Violence 2016. It's an event, but it's really about building a movement, and that's what we're really trying to do, build a movement of men who are really, you know, really down with ending violence and violence against women in particular, but violence in general and what role we can play in that and really transform transform or create new institutions, you know, because racism is real and it's part of all the work that I do and that we do at Connect. Um, so really 
you know, looking at those intersectional issues in a real practical way um, and realizing that people are not just dealing with one issue. You know, there's many other things that are happening, particularly in cities like New York City. So we're really trying to do our part to um, be part of this uh, movement and violence. And if you're in the New York City area on Thursday, June 9th at noon, you can join Q and his Connect family and community members who are lifting up fathers and men committed to change on the steps of New York City Hall. And there's also other events happening in New York City on Saturday, June 18th at 2 o'clock at the Grand Central Library. That's the one in Brooklyn, yes. I'm really looking forward to the both events, you know, because the, the, the June 9th on City Hall Steps is a very powerful example of, you know, people coming together. But then also on June 18th in Brooklyn Grand, uh, Central Library, Grand Army Plaza, um, we're going to have an, an event. We're going to have a, a Father's, father's Roundtable with some real dynamic fathers and activists from New York City communities, and then we're also going to have to do a panel of father figures, and you know, that's a very important conversation as well. Because um, any, you know, when we work with youth, particularly black boys, the work is not just with them, but it's work with the adults in their lives. So that's the other part that we're part of the comprehensive piece around the work that we're doing at Connect. And I just want to say that you know, um, most of Connect's programming is for women and girls, but we, we're making an a intentional effort to really engage and develop these men and boys programs. And we've been doing that for 14 years now, so it's really grown in a, in a huge way. And we've partnered with uh, women and girls colleagues um, to really, you know, keep us um, keep us on point, hold us accountable, and really listen to their voices when we do our programming for men and boys. So I just want to stress that. So June 9th, City Hall Steps in New York City at noon, and then June 18th in Brooklyn, 2 p.m., at the Central Library Grand Army Plaza. Come join us and uh, be a part of history, really. And as we close, the pledge is available if you want to recite the pledge or at least give us a piece of the pledge that you want to share with the folks who won't be in New York sure. City but who want to show, show up and support. And you can close with a poem if you have one that you want to share. Yeah, I'll, I'll do both. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's, actually this is a poem that I wrote as a very young child when I thought about manhood, and as I began doing this work, you know, and I didn't even think I would end up doing this work, to be honest with you, but it made a lot of sense to me then. And it's just it's just, it's just a little couple of lines, and I know you, everyone knows there's a historical poem called Man Child, but this is my version of it. Simply this, I am, I am a man. I learned to be a man, and I learned to be a man from the pain of being a child. Now that I'm a man, I've learned that I was never a child. I'm a man-child. When my eyes tear as a man, I'm actually crying like a child. I'm a man-child. And what's really about the pressures of manhood and passing down certain types of masculinity to youth, that we end up not being youth. We end up growing up very quickly um, so that sometimes we lose this, this real pure peace about being a young black boy and all these pressures around manhood, racism, classism, all these different things that are put on young people and black boys in particular uh, growing up. So a lot of times we lose our childhood because a lot of pressures are put on us to kind of navigate the world in a particular type of way because of one, of course, of gender, but then because of race and racism 
and sexism. So that's, that's that little piece, um, you know, called Man Child that I wrote. It's a longer poem, but those are the key things I think are relevant right now. And then really quickly, the pledge. Um, I'll do uh, a couple of lines of it. The first one is, I pledge to never commit, condone, or remain silent about domestic violence, intimate violence, and violence in our homes, schools, and communities. I pledge to educate myself and others and challenge abusive attitudes that condone disrespectful behavior or sexist and degrading language toward anyone. I pledge to take action to prevent and end all forms of violence with love, compassion, and without judgment. I pledge to love and inspire our family, friends, and community, support our brothers, sisters, and our youth in need of guidance. I pledge to work actively to engage men and boys to prevent and end violence. Those are a few of the uh, lines of the pledge. Thank you, Q. I stand with you and I pledge in partnership with Connect on behalf of myself as a mother who was parenting a black boy and raising him up to be a man who pledges just the same. So yeah. thank you for this time. I really appreciate the conversation and um, we'll share your information with folks to support the work of Connect to support the annual Father's Day Pledge to End Violence. Thank you, Trina. Much love to you, and keep being a great mother to those wonderful children that you have. And, um, you know, I appreciate you for who you are and what you do. Thank you, brother.